Hello and welcome to A History of Hannibal, episode 38, My Generation. Before the creations of the modern world allowed human beings to kill each other on an unprecedented scale, the 2nd of August, 216 BC, was the date of one of the most, if not the most, bloodiest day in history. At Cannae, Rome lost 50,000 troops, 10 legions worth. To give some perspective to this, one of the most famous Roman defeats is the Battle of Teutoburg Forest, in which three legions were obliterated. Ten perished at Cannae. You may be asking how this is possible, as only eight legions were raised, but the number of Roman legions was matched by the number of allied troops. So, 16 legions fought that day. Rome had never dealt with anything like this before. Today, we'll look at what happened after, as the leftover Romans try and get their act together. The battle saw an immediate change in circumstances. Many coastal towns swapped sides, particularly in Campania. The most notable defections were the Tarentines, as well as Arpai. While this is very significant, we're going to focus on events immediately after the battle. The Carthaginians were preoccupied by collecting treasure from the battlefield. Hannibal then moved against the Romans, who were holding out. You'll remember from episode 34 that there were two Roman camps at Cannae, a larger and smaller one. 10,000 troops were holding out in the large camp, 7,000 in the small. Hannibal surrounded the smaller camp, which, much to Hannibal's surprise, almost immediately capitulated. Considering these are Romans, it is quite surprising. But after the devastation of Cannae, it is understandable in my eyes. I'm sure they had no idea what the consequences of the battle would be. The troops were wounded and shattered. Better to live and fight another day than throw your life away. They handed over their horses and weapons and there would be a ransom of 300 denarii per Roman, 200 per ally, and 100 per slave. The gates were opened, and the Romans were taken prisoner. The force in the larger camp was, well, larger. The force here broke into two groups, those who were feeling brave, and those who weren't. About 4,000 infantry and 200 cavalry felt brave enough to flee the camp and made their way to Canusium. Some marching in columns, others fleeing individually across the countryside. These troops made it, and the gamble paid off. The town of Canusium promised to protect them and offer them shelter, but no more. The troops may have starved, were it not for Busa. 
Busa was a wealthy woman of Apulia, and she volunteered to provide the force with food, clothes, and money for the road. The gesture did not go unnoticed. Busa was formally honoured by the Roman Senate once the war was over. Those 6,000 or so who did not have the heart for the operation would soon have regretted their decision, as it was unable to hold out and surrendered on the same terms as the smaller Roman camp. In the fugitive force of 4,000, there were four military tribunes. Quintus Fabius Maximus, Lucius Publicus Bibulus, Publius Cornelius Scipio, and Appius Claudius Pulcher. Of these, Bibulus is the only one who is unimportant in our story, and who will not be mentioned further. As for the other three, their names should be familiar, and they will be very important in the next few years. You'll recall that vast numbers of the aristocracy were killed at Canae. This was a great opportunity for the next generation, and these three will seize their opportunity. All three would rise to the rank of consul by the end of the war. Quintus Fabius Maximus was the son of the famous dictator Quintus Fabius Maximus. He will be consul in 213 BC and command numerous armies throughout the war. Appius Claudius was the son of Publius Claudius Pulcher, who was consul in 249 BC and who fought and lost the naval battle at Drapana in the First Punic War. Still struggling to remember who he is? It's the battle with the sacred chickens. Ah, yeah, you've got it now. Appius will be consul in 212 BC, and will fight in the siege of Capua. Publius Cornelius Scipio was the son of Publius Cornelius Scipio, the consul of 218 BC, who is currently fighting with his brother Gnaeus in Spain. To avoid confusing him with his father, we'll call him by the title he is yet to win. But how you will know him. Scipio Africanus. I don't think I need to tell you how big a role he will have in our future. Command was offered to Appius Claudius and Scipio Africanus. This is highly impressive on Scipio's part, as he was aged only 19. As they were talking over plans for what to do next with friends, Another young noble, named Phileus, walked in and lamented how all was lost. A group of patricians, led by Lucius Caecilius Metellus, were planning to flee abroad to a foreign prince. The men were struck numb. The friends listening proposed a general conference when Scipio spoke, saying that action was needed, not words. In Livy, Book 22, Chapter 53, he says, Come with me, instantly, sword in hand, if you wish to save our country. The enemy's camp is nowhere more truly than in the place where such thoughts can rise. With a few followers, he went straight to where Metellus was staying, 
assembled in the house where the men of whom Phileas had spoken, still discussing their plans. Scipio burst in, and holding his bared sword over their head, I swear, he cried, with all the passion of my heart, that I shall never desert our country, or permit any other citizen of Rome to leave her in the lurch. If I willfully break my oath, may Jupiter, greatest and best, bring me to a shameful death, with my house, my family, and all I possess. Swear the same oath, Caecilius, and all the rest of you swear it too. If anyone refuse against him, this sword is drawn. They could not have been more scared had they been looking into the face of their conqueror, Hannibal. Every man of them took the oath and gave himself into Scipio's custody. From this quote, you can see Scipio begin to show himself to be a leader, and a true fighter. I don't know about you, but it reminds me of another famous speech. The British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule. We shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island, or a large part of it, were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle, until, in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Spoken by Winston Churchill to the House of Commons on the 4th of June, 1940. Perhaps Britain's darkest hour. We must always be careful of ancient speeches. We have quotes from the ancient sources, but it is very unlikely that these words were said at least in this form. The great historian Thucydides states of his history of the Peloponnesian War in Book 1, Chapter 22. Of the various speeches made either when war was imminent or in the course of the war itself, it has been hard to reproduce the exact words used either when I heard them myself or when they were reported to me by the sources. My method in this book has been to make each speaker say broadly what I supposed would have been needed on any given occasion, while keeping as closely as I could to the overall intent of what was actually said. In recording the events of the war, my principle has been not to rely on casual information or my own suspicions, but to apply the greatest possible rigour in pursuing every detail of what I saw myself 
and of what I heard from others. It was laborious research, as eyewitnesses on each occasion would give different accounts of the same event, depending on their individual loyalties or memories. It may be that the lack of romantic element in my history will make it less of a pleasure to the ear, but I shall be content if it is judged useful by those who will want to have a clear understanding of what happened, and, such is the human condition, will happen again at some time in the same or similar pattern. It was composed as a permanent legacy, not a showpiece for a single hearing. I hope you've picked out the key passage in that paragraph. My method in this book has been to make each speaker say broadly what I supposed would have been needed. This comes from arguably the most scientific historian before Edward Gibbon, the historian's historian. If such a reputable source is essentially making up his speeches, what hope do we have that Livy is actually stating what happened, rather than what he thought happened, or even worse, wanted to happen? Scipio does sound like a young Winston Churchill. We will not flee the country. We will fight in the fields. We will fight by the Po. We will fight in Rome, and we shall never surrender. Stuff like that. But just because we have it doesn't make it true. That was a very long digression, and I'm not entirely sure what the point of it was. So let's return to something a bit more on topic. What was happening to Varro? 4,000 troops managed to make their way to Varro at Venusia, where they were well looked after by the city. The Venusians were very eager not to be outdone by Busa at Canusium, though Busa's task was far harder, as the number of troops there had now risen to 10,000. Appius and Scipio heard that Varro had survived, and immediately sent word to him of their troop numbers, and asked whether they should bring their men to Venusia. Rather than sending a messenger to reply, Varro marched to Canusium with his troops and made that his base. This made the army at least 15,000 strong, resembling a consular army in strength. They now felt large enough and strong enough to be able to defend themselves. I like to quote very important events of history directly from the sources, and while we've had a lot of quotes this episode, please indulge me once again, as we find out what happened when word of the disaster reached Rome. First, let's begin with Polybius. Book 3, Chapter 118. As for the Romans, after this defeat, they gave up all hope of maintaining their supremacy over the Italians, and began to fear for their native soil, and indeed for their very existence, since they expected Hannibal to appear at any moment. And in fact, the next event made it seem 
as though Fortune herself had taken sides against them in their struggle, and filled their cup of tribulation to overflowing. Only a few days later, while the city was still aghast at the news of Canai, Lucius Postumius, the general whom they had sent to Cisalpine Gaul, was surprised by the Celts in an ambush, and his army wiped out. In spite of these blows, the Senate left nothing undone that it was in its powers to do. It encouraged the people, strengthened the defences of the city, and considered the facts of the situation in a brave and manly spirit. And the events that were to follow bore witness to its steadfastness. For, although the Romans had beyond any dispute been worsted in battle and their military reputation annihilated, yet, through the peculiar virtues of their constitution and their ability to keep their heads, they not only won back their supremacy in Italy and later defeated the Carthaginians, but within a few years had made themselves masters of the whole world. Let's talk about this quote. Firstly, the bit about the constitution. Polybius is obsessed with the Roman constitution, and how balanced it is. While he likes a balanced constitution, he also dislikes democracy, which is part of the reason why he is stating this. Rome becomes much less democratic, and more dominated by the Senate after Cannae. Arguably, until the time Polybius is writing, in the 130s and 120s BC. Rome's growth in this period will no doubt prove this in Polybius's mind. To me, it sounds more like he is being a romantic and reminding us that Rome will rise from the ashes, rather than making a legitimate statement about Rome at this low point. It must also be remembered Polybius's audience. He is trying to explain Rome to his fellow Greeks, and constitutions would be a way that the Greeks could understand what was happening. The Greeks had a very interesting fascination with constitutions, and what made a good one. Something they found highly likeable in a constitution was stability. This led to some very interesting understandings of the world. Sparta had a very stable constitution. It had an assembly, two kings, an elder council, and the force. This system didn't change. There is a possibility the ephors were a later change to the constitution, but the basis of it had been the same since the dawn of the Archaic Age, in the 8th century BC. Sparta never had a tyranny, unlike other Greek states, and this explained its greatness throughout the Archaic and Classical Ages, down to the Battle of Leuctra in 371 BC. After this date, Spartan power collapsed, and was essentially unimportant, but the Greeks failed to really understand this. 
they tried to explain this away by saying that Sparta could have been powerful, it just decided not to be. It was impossible in their minds to understand how Sparta had fallen, despite the constitution remaining the same. It is a very strange quirk of the Greek mind, and must be remembered when thinking about Polybius. Rome had a stable constitution since the overthrow of the kings almost 300 years ago. This will have helped explain Roman success to the Greek mind. Along with this, the two scenes that Polybius describes don't seem to work particularly well together. The Senate both securing defences for the city and preparing for the next fight, at the same time as giving up. I suspect Polybius is trying to get the best of both worlds in terms of style, but wearied preparation for whatever the future may hold is quite likely. It combines both the never-surrender, obstinate attitude of the Romans with the sheer depression that accompanies such a defeat as Cannae. Let's now take a look at Livy, Book 22, Chapter 54. No news had reached Rome of the survival even of this remnant of the national and allied armies, but it was still believed that both consuls had perished with all their men, and that the entire military force had been wiped out. Never, without an enemy actually within the gates, had there been such terror and confusion in the city. To write of it is beyond my strength, so I shall not attempt to describe what any words of mine would only make less than the truth. In the previous year, a consul and his army had been lost at Trasimene, and now there was news not merely of another similar blow, but of a multiple catastrophe. Two consular armies annihilated, both consuls dead. Rome left without a force in the field, without a commander, without a single soldier. Apulia and Samnium in Hannibal's hands, and now nearly the whole of Italy overrun. No other nation in the world could have suffered so tremendous a series of disasters and not been overwhelmed. It was unparalleled in history. The naval defeat of the Aegates Islands, a defeat which forced the Carthaginians to abandon Sicily and Sardinia, and suffer themselves to pay taxes and tribute to Rome. The final defeat in Africa, to which Hannibal himself afterwards succumbed, neither one nor the other was in any way comparable to what Rome had now to face, except in the fact that they were not born with so high a courage. If Polybius is showing romantic tendencies, Livy is full of them. Bear in mind who Livy is writing for. He's writing for Augustus in the middle of the Augustan Renaissance, writing a nationalistic history of Rome. It is immensely patriotic. He says no other nation could have survived such a defeat, and then reminds the reader of Carthaginian defeats 
which broke them, which were much less disastrous than Rome's losses. In Polybius's account, what he says is very interesting to me. In Livy's, I'm more interested by what he doesn't say. You'll notice how he forgets to mention how Rome's defeat took place after two years of war, when Rome had plenty of strength left to recover from those defeats. While the Carthaginian defeats he mentioned took place after two decades of war, not two years. Carthage was exhausted by then in both points of the respective conflicts, and while the defeat wasn't as bad, Carthage had no energy left to recover. Had Cannae happened after two decades of war, we might well be telling a very different story. Also, he casually mentions Sardinia in the peace settlement at the end of the First Punic War. But as you'll remember, Sardinia was not part of the peace settlement, but something Rome seized after the fact and dared Carthage to do anything about it. He also describes what the Romans thought was the case, rather than what was really the case, and leaves the actual panic to your imagination. While a powerful description is one thing, it creates a new sense of impressiveness to the situation that Livy, master of words that he is, cannot describe the situation as he would be unable to do it justice. Needless to say, Rome was not in a good way when word came in of the defeat at Cannae. Next time, we'll cover the preparations Rome makes for the future, and follow up what happens to the Roman hostages Carthage is keeping. Though, if you listen to Hanny in episode 35, you'll already know how that works out. Before I go, I'd like to ask you what you've thought of today's episode. It's not very often that I go into full-on historian mode and break out of the narrative completely to analyse the sources, what they're telling us, and why they are telling us it. Did you enjoy it? Do you want to see more of it? Or would you rather keep it to the occasional episode? Please let me know. You can let me know on Facebook, Twitter, or email. All the usual stuff. Thanks very much for listening. I'll see you next week.